Well, I'm not sure if it's common knowledge, but a team from your church was in Mexico the last couple of days. My wife and I, Nathan and Sarah, their uh, Autumn and August, their children, and Mike Owens, our children's director, and his wife and his oldest daughter, Naomi, were in Mexico, and we wanted to make sure you knew about an information meeting. Um, This agency down here, it's more than just leading summer trips down to Mexico. In fact, that's not really primarily why they exist. The, The summer trip helps you understand better the Great Commission. Well, what they're really doing is very exciting to me uh, to hear about what they're doing. These are missionaries, former missionaries, who just saw a, a troubling trend in the missionary world where lots of missionaries go in the field and come right back. They come right back because we, we want to reach those 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 unreached people groups, because Jesus said that the gospel will go to all the nations, right? All the nations, every ethne, every people group. And when that task is completed, he will return. And boy, do we want him to come back. Amen? Amen. This is our job he's given us. And so it's hard to get to one of these remaining unreached people groups, um, Nobody speaks the language. Sometimes they don't have a written language. And the goal is to get there and not just win one convert, but plant a reproducing church, which means they're going to need the Word of God, which means they may even need an alphabet in their language and be taught how to read and write. So this place is preparing missionaries for the 20, they said it, 20 to life. You know, not in a bad way. But in, in a good way, that, um, and training them to realize that they cannot do this on their own, that they, if they think their love for Jesus is enough to complete the task, they've deluded themselves. We need to understand this about ourselves before we get excited about, yeah, I'm going to go save the world for Jesus. And then we get out there, and there's some trials, and... Um, and then we give up, and then you feel horribly guilty. I bet you've been through this cycle yourself. You don't need to go to the other side of the world to feel this. So I'm very excited about the way they're training missionaries here. So part of the Mexico trip is to minister to the people of Mexico. We are going to build some houses, i.e. sheds with glassless windows. Um, and... But you'll also receive good, solid, biblical teaching on the Great Commission. So excited about the trip. Go to one of these, these luncheons. See Mike Owens after church. I really like to see our whole church on board with this vision of missions. Uh, missions. It's really what we're doing as a church. Fewer missionaries that we support. More Help me with the word here. Instead of giving them like 5% of their financial support, support them at like the 50, 60, 70% level. Really get to know them, know who they are, be involved in their lives, help them with this task God's given them to reach unreached people groups. Well, in God's providence, going down to Mexico was a great springboard into the sermon because we're going to look at the parable about the rich man and the poor man. 
or, or the rich man in Lazarus. So if you'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, in this section of Luke where Jesus is teaching parable after parable after parable. So another parable this morning and some important teaching about riches, poverty, and salvation. Let me read the story to you. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. And besides this, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, They will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Powerful, powerful parable. And it is a parable. Let me get that out of the way right now. Theologians argue about whether this is a parable or a real story. It's a parable. He's been teaching in parables. Everything about the structure of the story indicates it's a parable. Then why the argument, you might say? Because it's the only parable where Jesus assigns an actual name to a character, Lazarus. Now, it's not his friend Lazarus that we know from the Gospel of John. It's a different Lazarus. But I don't think that that's enough evidence to say Jesus was telling an actual story. In fact, the details of the story seem fabricated in such a way to really present a stark contrast between a typical rich person and a typical poor person. What do parables do? Parables were Jesus' way of teaching spiritual truth by using something in the material world to say, hey, 
you see life is like this, well, this is the way real life is. It's the spiritual world. How can we understand spiritual things if we've never been there? So somebody from the spiritual realm came in the person of Jesus Christ and is teaching us by using everyday analogies around us to help us understand spiritual truth. We also understand that Jesus was very clear that he didn't teach parables to make spiritual truth more clear, more clear to people who were already rejecting spiritual truth. In fact, he was teaching in parables to hide the truth as a form of judgment to those who already had rejected the truth. It wasn't like Jesus was saying, okay, well, they, they don't want to hear me when I teach plainly. Let me, let me try something else. I mean, that's what I try to do as a, as a teacher. Because the goal is for the kids to understand math or whatever it is I'm teaching. Okay, well, let's try another angle. Jesus specifically says that's not what I'm doing when I teach parables. I'm switching over to parables to hide the truth from those who've already rejected my clear teaching and the clear teachings of the Bible. But for those who are humble and want to know the truth, parables can reveal more truth to us. So, Everyone in this room is in one of two categories this morning. Either this sermon will illuminate your heart more because you're teachable or it will harden your heart and you'll walk away either confused or angry or in complete disagreement. Now, if you disagree with my interpretation of Scripture, I'm not saying it's because you're an unbeliever. It's not what I'm saying here. I'm just saying that the, the, the parable is a very simple teaching here. And I'll just let you know what it is right off the bat. You don't have to guess. Okay? All Jesus is teaching in this parable is that riches are not an indication of righteousness. And poverty is not an indication of God's punishment. Riches don't equal righteousness necessarily. Poverty doesn't equal punishment. But that was the bad theology of the day. Now that's something we all have in common in this room, myself included, which is weird for the guy getting up teaching theology to say we all have bad theology. We all have bad theology. In and in as much as we have God's theology revealed to us in the Word of God with the proper interpretation, we have good theology. We aim for good theology. We want to know God rightly. We want to believe the truth about God. We want to know His ways and walk in His ways and interpret His world that He has put us in correctly. That's why we're here this morning. Word of God, speak to me, teach me, correct me, rebuke me. I'm ready to learn. But learning starts with the acknowledgement that I have something to learn. That I am wrong somewhere. You've got to start each morning with this 
humble heart attitude. Teach me, O Lord, your ways. And yes, that includes things you've taught me over and over and over again. I keep reverting back to my bad theology. The Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and chief priests and elders, the religious leaders of the day, had bad theology. They're no different than anyone else. What made them especially dangerous was they didn't think they had bad theology. The most dangerous people on the planet, those who think they're right about all of their observations, all of their interpretations, all of their philosophy. Here God shows up in human flesh to say, hey, you're wrong about me. No, we're not. It's bad enough when somebody makes a miscalculated judgment about you and you say, no, that's not what I was thinking at all. Yes, you were. Ouch. You know my heart, really. These people were doing it to God. And anytime we have this hardened heart against God, in essence, we're telling God we know better than Him. We know His world better than He knows His world. So they had this bad theology, this erroneous theology. So Jesus is teaching this parable to correct their theology. It doesn't need to be a true story to get the point across. So then why does he name a character in the story when he never does this in any other parable recorded in Scripture. By the way, we don't have every parable Jesus ever taught probably recorded in Scripture. We don't know this is the only time he ever named somebody in a parable. It's just the ones we have recorded, this is rare, extremely rare, that he actually named somebody Lazarus. I think, I think, I could be wrong. I think, He did this for two reasons in this parable. I'll give you one now and one at the end. So you'll stay. Okay? I'll give you one now. I think he gave a name to the poor man because this culture so dehumanizes the poor that people don't even bother to think of that person laying in the street as a human being with a name. A human being that was born of a woman and nursed at his mother's breast and was loved and was was taken care of. Because their bad theology was the more you suffered, the more poor you were, the more proof it was that you were under God's condemnation. You you had it coming. And honestly, if I got involved with helping you, I would be interfering with God's discipline in your life. You're over there in another class of people, and some people ended up in a class where they weren't even seen as people. And so here Jesus in this parable gives this wretched, poor beggar covered in sores being licked by dogs 
which isn't that far of a stretch after visiting Mexico for a couple days. Dogs everywhere, chasing cars down the street, mangy, mutts, and the poor. In the heart of Tijuana, that's bad for tourism, so we would see the police kicking the poor, sweeping them up, shooing them out of the tourist district, or throwing them in in the uh, police car and taking them wherever and leaving all of their belongings behind. Jennifer and I had a, a room that had no exterior window. <laughs> but I know Nathan and Sarah, they had an exterior window and you said that's what you saw first thing in the morning was they were cleaning the riffraff up off the streets. So Jesus gives this poor man a name. Notice the rich man has no name. He's humanizing the poor man and, and in essence doing to the rich what the rich have been doing to the poor all along. Yeah, it's just some rich guy habitually dressing in purple. Well, purple was an expensive cloth of the day. The, the, The dyes used to make purple were very expensive. Paul had a friend named Lydia who was what? She sold purple cloth. She had money. She helped finance his, his missionary journeys. And she was a righteous woman. So it's not that the rich are unrighteous. That's not what Jesus is teaching here at all. Don't, don't correct bad theology with worse theology. Don't walk out of here this morning with this view that the rich are horrible, terrible, evil Not what Jesus is teaching at all. But for people who are so locked into this idea that rich equals righteous, poor equals punished for your sin, he's got to teach in such a way that it's a smack across the face. Just smack right into the reality of God's word and truth. Because Jesus is teaching spiritual truth at the end of the day, and just in case anyone tunes me out or drifts off to sleep or leaves, I want you to hear this now. You and I are Lazarus spiritually. We are all Lazarus spiritually apart from Jesus Christ. We are poor, wretched, naked, begging, waiting for crumbs, We're outcasts. We bring nothing to the table. Wholly dependent on God's mercy. Have mercy on me. I'm a Lazarus. Jesus doesn't get too far into the story when there's this reversal of fortune which just turns the theology of the day on its head. So now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Wait a minute, that's not where he belongs. He's poor because he's a wretched sinner. Abraham's bosom is a Hebrew euphemism for heaven. 
There's Father Abraham welcoming his children to the place of rest. The promised land was all about a place of rest. It pointed to a greater land of rest, heaven. Abraham's bosom, his side, where you could lay your head on Abraham's bosom in the same way that the Apostle John laid his head on Jesus' bosom on the night of the Last Supper. It's it's the place of honor and the place of intimacy. I don't let a lot of people lay on my bosom. Right? And he was taken there by angels. Oh, and by the way, the rich man died that day too and he was buried. I'm sure he had a very nice tomb. Very expensive tomb. Sure, there was a great ceremony and lots of people came and said nice things about him. And maybe somebody said, didn't there used to be some guy laying in the street in that corner every day? Where'd he go? And the story shifts to Hades. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Now notice Jesus doesn't give us any background. We don't know anything else about these guys except that one was rich, one was poor. One was rich, one was poor. We don't know how he got his riches. We don't know how he became impoverished. We don't know the circumstances of their lives. We don't know if the wealth was inherited, if he worked for the wealth. We don't know if Lazarus was lazy. We don't know if he invested poorly. We don't know if he made some poor choices in life. We don't know if he was stricken by disease. We don't know anything because that's the point of the story. Is you can't make judgment about people's spiritual condition based on their outward circumstances. And that's what people were doing. And you say, well, that's terrible. That is, it is terrible. I'm glad we're not like that today. Oh, are we not? I think this is a universal human problem which is why it's in the Scriptures, and the Scriptures are relevant for us today and tomorrow. Not just relevant for people 2,000 years ago. Oh, because we live in a Christianized nation, our theology is better, but just under the surface, I think lurking in our hearts is some bad theology. And the pendulum swings one of two directions. One direction would be to say, anyone who's poor, it's because of their environment. It's because of their environment. They can't help it. They can't help it. It just happened to them. It just happened to them. They were oppressed. If you're poor, you must be oppressed. If someone has more than you, it must be because they took from you. Oh, maybe not directly. Maybe through schemes and corporate schemes and this, that, and the other. And if you're of a certain political persuasion, this tends to be how you look at the world. Even if you're rich yourself, which is strange to me. Just strange. But I'm guessing based on what I know of 
people in this church, most people swing the other way. Which is, that poor man made some poor choices in life. He is where he is because, hey, this is a, this, this is a country where if you just work hard and do the right thing, follow the rules, you shouldn't end up like Lazarus. And certainly, the Bible, especially in Proverbs, teaches that if we're responsible and wise and listen to God, things generally will go better for us than if we choose the path of foolishness. But when we swing the pendulum too far the other way, aren't we getting awfully close to I am doing really well in life because God is blessing me for all of my good choices? Aren't we just one step away from God is pleased with me not because of my faith in Christ but because of all of my good choices in life? Even those who affirm the doctrine of election are one step away from saying, well, I was elected because look at my resume. Look at my record. When really the Bible teaches that doctrine for the opposite effect, well, why would God choose have Choose to have mercy on anyone because he's a merciful God and he will have mercy on whom he has mercy. By grace you have been saved through faith and it's not of yourselves, not by works so that no man may boast. It is a gift from God. Whether the rich man or Lazarus eventually gets to heaven is a gift from God. Amen? Amen. Glory to God. Glory to God. No glory to man. Paul said, I'll boast in one thing. I'll boast in Jesus Christ on the cross. That's my boast. So the listeners would be confused at this point. Wait a minute. How did the rich man end up in Hades and Lazarus end up in Abraham's bosom in heaven? By the way, Hades, if this is working, you guys can go to the next slide for me. Hades is not hell. It's not a synonym for hell. Hades, biblically, is a separate place from hell. It is where the souls of the unrighteous, and by unrighteous the Bible means, has not been declared righteous by God. We're all unrighteous. But when we place our faith in God for salvation, most specifically as New Testament believers, we place our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. We're declared righteous. And we're given a righteousness that's not our own. So we don't go to Hades when we die. We go to where I think Dave Gillette is hanging out right now. Jesus' bosom. I was, I was hoping that after 
he falls on his face and worships his Lord, that Jesus would give him a nice firm handshake. Because that's what Dave was all about, right? I've got an exercise thing. He gave me as a new pastor because he was concerned about the lack of strength in my grip. And I said, well, firm handshake's important. And he told me, it's so you don't lose grip on God's word. Yeah. Oh, okay. He said, I don't want to see you getting into that pulpit with anything else in your hand. Hades is the abode of the dead. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word was sheol. You see it in the Psalms a lot. Sheol. It's not purgatory, which is no such place biblically. It's not a place where you go and like pay off some of your sin and hopefully get a second chance at going into heaven. It's more like the holding cell before you go before the judge, before you get your final sentencing. And it's a terrible place, and hell's a terrible place. And I don't want to skip or pass over that. It's a terrible reality. It's a terrible reality. And it's a terrible reality for people like the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders to have decided in their hearts that this man, Lazarus, is going to hell. Look at him. Of course he is. Look. Look at him. Obviously, God's not smiling on this person. What a terrible place to get to where in your heart you've decided who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. That's really bad theology. Even Jesus says in his word that many who look on the outside like they should be going to heaven, that professed Jesus as Lord and did works in his name, may find out on the last day. Lord, Lord! And Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you. And we understand what he was saying was, you never placed your faith in me for salvation. You were even placing your confidence in the works you were doing for me. It was never about your need for mercy. So whether you're doing the good works to impress the world or your friends or whoever, or you're doing the good works to impress God, your good works, Paul says, are nothing but filthy rags. They're a stumbling block to salvation. We do the good works after we're saved to say thank you. Remember, the parable isn't here to teach us about Nuanced theology on heaven and hell. We can learn some things about heaven and hell, but we have to look at other passages that teach about heaven and hell and Hades. The point of the parable is this. Again, riches do not necessarily mean you are righteous. Poverty does not necessarily mean God is punishing you for unrighteousness. Riches and poverty are horrible indicators of whether or not God is satisfied with you. I've met some wonderful, godly, poor people, some wonderful, godly, rich people, and everything in between, and some horribly ungodly poor people, and some horribly ungodly rich people. 
And do I have a problem jumping to conclusions? I do. And I need this passage to correct me. Do you? Do you jump to conclusions when you're down in Bakersfield and somebody asks you for money? They want it for drugs. I don't know that. I'm not saying give money to people. You're going to have to work that out with the Lord. I'm just saying don't base your answer off of some bad theology lurking in your heart. I don't know this person's story. In fact, I believe it's better that we help people by getting to know their story. Because sometimes one of the most loving things God can do for us is to take our money away from us. Do you hear that? That's the opposite of what the Pharisees were... They they didn't see God's love in poverty. What's going to drive you closer to the Lord, maybe? I just love that psalmist who said, Don't make me so poor, I'm tempted to doubt your love, but don't make me so rich that I don't need your love. I'm paraphrasing loosely. But wherever my sweet spot is, God, you know where it is. I don't know where it is. Keep me dependent on you, but not second-guessing your goodness and faithfulness. And for some people, their sweet spot is millions. Clearly, I can't handle such a spot. And I'm tempted to believe that when money is tight that somehow God's not smiling on me. And then when unexpected windfall comes in, oh, look at God, he is just, of course he's blessing you. But don't assume that when the windfall doesn't come in that he's not blessing you. Maybe he's blessing you by not putting money in your pocket. Maybe he's humbling you, which is always a good place to be. In fact, the next time my kids ask for money, I'm going to say, I'm going to love you like Jesus loves me. No. <laughs> Why would I hate you and give you a 20? Why would I do that? <laughs> Notice that the, the rich man says, Father Abraham. And so here, the next assumption would be by the Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe he's not really a Jew. Because their other bad theology was, if you were a Jew, you're in. Maybe. (laughs) So they're probably thinking, I bet this guy's a Samaritan or maybe a Gentile. But he calls Abraham father, and what does Abraham call him back? Child. So here's Jesus correcting more bad theology. It's not your heritage either. It's not your heritage either. Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now... But now he's being comforted here, and you are in agony. In a sense, as Jesus is telling the story, I can see the facial expressions he's making to the religious leaders. Huh, imagine that. Hmm. You thought you were just going to get more of the same later, but look. 
you know, wake up. So it's not my bank account, it's not my heritage. And so we might play the same game, I don't know, denominationally. How do you know you're going to heaven? Well, I've been a good Baptist all my life. Good for you. How do you know you're going to heaven? Sadly, hell will be filled with many people who think they were good Baptists or good Presbyterians or good Catholics or good whatever. These denominational names existed thousands of years after our Lord brought the glorious gospel of grace to the world. I cringe when I hear people say, well, they're not saved. How do you know? Well, they're, they're Catholic. I think there's many saved people in the Catholic Church. I wish they wouldn't hang out there. But people are complicated. Well, you don't understand. You're not Catholic. We, we have to go here. No, you don't. Go wherever they're teaching truth. And if the Southern Baptist Convention stops teaching the Word of God, go find somewhere else. Hopefully I'll be there with you. And pastors have had to do that. My denomination has rejected the Word of God. I'll leave my denomination and my pension and my everything. Uh, Pastor Kyle, right? What's his last name? Thank you. I think he was a Methodist pastor. Not anymore. So you can't assume you're saved because you're a member of Country Oaks Baptist Church. (laughs) We heard your profession of faith. We heard your testimony. You said all the right things. We see fruits of repentance in your life. And the Bible gives us assurance that these things give us assurance of our salvation. But I can't say, even as a pastor, saved, not saved, saved, not saved, saved, not saved. I I, I can't do that. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing based on heritage and bank account. Saved, not saved, saved, not saved. And sadly, most of them were what? Saved or not saved? Not saved. The people who thought they were saved were not saved. And many of the people that they said were not saved may end up being the people who were saved. So the man in the story figures out, I'm wrong. It's very humbling once you actually get to the place you thought you weren't going that I guess I can't argue anymore because I'm here and it's hot. And... You can cry all you want that, no, 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 this isn't where I belong. And see, that's the problem with our pride is we argue with God and we think we're going to win. We're going to define reality on our, our own terms. But then you try to live in that reality and reality has a funny way of hitting you over the head, doesn't it? 
What's sad about spiritual things is we don't find out we're wrong until it's too late. In the same way I could say I don't believe in gravity and jump off a building and then find out right at the last nanosecond. I'm having some doubts about this no gravity theory. Lots of other philosophies we have, we do find out the hard way and there's time to change. I'm like, oh, huh, that's not turning out the way I thought. I'm going to need to recalibrate. But death is final. It's appointed for each man to die once and then the judgment. And so he says, well, can you at least send Lazarus down to like help me cool off a little? Just dip his finger in the water and... Dip it on my tongue. And Jesus says, no, Abraham says there's this great chasm. I believe what's going on here is this is exactly what the rich religious leaders were teaching in the here and now. Well, there's this great chasm. Well, why don't you help those people get from there to here? Well, there's this great chasm. We can't get over there. They can't come over here. Right? parable of the good samaritan the holy religious people wouldn't even pass over on the other side of the street to go help the man who was beaten a great chasm they're unclean i'll be defiled i must keep my distance if god wants them to be over here he will bring them over here himself once they clean up their act am i my brother's keeper no they would say no no i'm not my brother's keeper I made my choices, they've turned out well. He's made his choices, they've turned out poorly. That's life. That's not life. That is not how it works. Because if that's how it works, we'd all be doomed. Because there's none who seeks after God. No, not one. Praise the Lord, he sought after you. Praise the Lord, he sought after me. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I did not fix my own blindness. So there's irony here. In the same way they said there's this great chasm, we can't help the poor. In the parable, hey, there's a great chasm. I'd love to come help you down in Hades, but as you know, there's a great chasm. Yeah, you didn't. You thought people liked hearing that in the here and now? Wait till you hear those same words echoing in your head in Hades. Hey, remember your great chasm theology? Well, that's what we're running with here. And so. The man thinks of his brothers that are left behind. And he says, well, okay, one last shot here. Could you at least go talk to my brothers? Send Lazarus to go talk to my brothers. Everyone knows who this guy is. They see him every day. Everybody's ignored him. They're going to be amazed when Lazarus shows up in glory. It says, hey, your brother's down in Hades, and you're going to end up like him if you don't repent. That's what this rich man is hoping would happen. Some commentators want to attach some kind of meaning to the fact that there was five 
Brothers, and we understand that biblically numbers have significance. 3, 7, 10, 12, 40. But don't do damage to the parable by trying to find some kind of hidden meaning in the numbers. You know, there's like these people who like count up the number of letters in this word and add up the numbers and there's hidden meaning in the Bible. And if we have the right code, we can find out all kinds of hidden truth in the Bible. Even the day of Jesus' return, even though Jesus himself said he didn't know the day he was coming back. Five is not a significant number in the Hebrew, but six is, and there's six brothers altogether. Six is the number for unholiness, being incomplete. Seven's the number of completion. What's the most unholy number in the Bible? Three sixes. Just as God is holy, 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 six, six, six is the most unholy number in the Bible. So maybe Jesus is making this point. Look, these people who thought they were righteous, but we don't need the numbers to tell us that. The fact that the first brother to go is in Hades tells us if his theology is wrong, everybody with the same theology is wrong. This family that thought they were complete, they were righteous, if anyone's going to heaven, it's us, we're terribly wrong. Is there anyone here today who is terribly wrong? If anyone deserves heaven, it's me. Please, repent, change your theology. Even if you say the right theology out loud when people ask, oh no, I was saved by Jesus, saved by faith, I don't deserve heaven. But just below that profession of faith, you kind of think, yeah, that's true for everyone, but some of us are closer to working our way to heaven than others were. So I needed Jesus' grace to just kind of just get me over the finish line. There was this chasm, my friend, that you cannot cross because you and I are so filthy and unrighteousness, unrighteous compared to a holy God. I didn't just need a nudge over the finish line. I needed to be scooped up and carried. Carried. Over the finish line. It's the only way it's going to happen. And it's the only way you're going to be sanctified once you're saved. Is to continue to remind yourself of that every day. Jesus carried me over the finish line. I wasn't even looking for the finish line. I didn't even know where the race was. I was on the race to hell and I was winning. And I was proud of it. And if not for God's grace. And so Abraham says, I'm not sending Lazarus to warn your brothers. They have Moses and the prophets, which is not a 50s doo-wop band. Um, Moses and the prophets is a euphemism for the Old Testament. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, the, Pent- the Pentateuch, Torah, the law, 
and then the rest they just called the prophets. The law and the prophets. Moses and the prophets. They've got the scriptures. Yeah, but the scriptures don't teach this. Yes, they do. You interpreted it wrong. And you're without excuse. That's what Jesus is teaching in this parable. You've got bad theology. The right theology is here. You were just interpreting it wrong because of your pride and the hardness of your heart. And New Testament believers might say, well, we know how to get to heaven because we have the New Testament. How do the Old Testament saints, like which passage pointed them to salvation? The whole Old Testament pointed them to salvation by faith. By faith, Abraham left his home to go to the promised land and it was counted to him as righteousness. That God is good and that I must wholly lean on God for my life. Sounds a lot like the gospel, doesn't it? So it was there in the Old Testament. It's just more fully revealed in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. It's there. And if you need it to be there more clearly than that, just go read Isaiah 53. It's the clearest gospel presentation in the entire Bible, and it's in the Old Testament. Read Isaiah 53 this week. By his stripes, we are healed. That's the gospel. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's all the anthropology you need to know. That's the the study of man. Who is man? He's made in the image of God and he is a sinner. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. They understand repentance. Repent. To turn. To turn from what? To turn from pride. To turn from thinking you know what the truth is. From replacing God's theology with your own theology. Turning from all of that. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. I I told you at the beginning, I think Jesus used the name Lazarus for two reasons. One was to humanize the poor but specifically using the name Lazarus because he knew that he would raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. And when people saw him raise Lazarus from the dead, and when people saw Jesus raised from the dead, everybody came to saving faith. (laughs) Somebody knows his Bible and church history. Oh good, it's an elder. (laughs) I recognize that laugh. Evidential apologetics is important. It strengthens our faith. It informs our faith. But it's not what saves us. Because salvation's a heart issue long before it's a head issue. These people had the truth right in front of them and they were smart, intelligent, well-studied people. And they missed it because their hearts were blinded by their own pride and self-righteousness. 
They didn't know they needed help from God for everything. And Lazarus' name in the Greek means, God is my help. It's like Jesus knows what he's doing before he tells a story. It, like, it just so fits together in such a tight package. So then people say, okay, well, if they had the Old Testament, then what was it? What part of the Old Testament were they supposed to read and believe? Same thing we're supposed to read and believe. It's the same story. God is holy. Man is made in God's image. Man sinned against God. The wages of sin is death. God has made a way for salvation. Not by man working his way back to God, but by crying out to God for mercy. And putting his faith in a merciful God who revealed himself to Moses as the God who is merciful and abounding in steadfast love. The same God who, though, by no means will overlook sin. So, how do we get a God that doesn't overlook sin but is merciful? And the cross answers that question. Maybe they didn't fully understand in the Old Testament how that was going to work, but they knew their only chance of salvation was to cry out to God for mercy. And it's the same thing we need to do as New Testament believers. We just know exactly how God has answered that cry for mercy in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. Therefore, then, what does this parable actually teach? It doesn't teach that rich people then are evil and poor people are good. That's not what it's correcting. And it certainly dispels the myth of the self-righteous that riches are proof of God's approval and poverty is proof of God's judgment. It's teaching that none of those things tell us the spiritual condition of a human being. The Bible teaches us what the spiritual condition of every human being is. We are all Lazarus spiritually. And that the true way of salvation is clearly revealed in the Bible and man is without excuse. And so I say, put your trust in nothing else but God's Son and His sacrifice on the cross for you. And then you can have assurance whose bosom you'll be leaning on on the day you're called. Father, forgive us As middle class Americans, for assuming that our station in life has anything to do with our spiritual performance. For some of us, riches may be a reward, and for some of us, it may be a punishment today. Lord, teach us to look at the cross first thing every morning 
to reset our theology on what's true. That we do not deserve your love. It is given to us freely in Christ. May our hope be built on nothing less than Jesus' death and his righteousness. Amen. Amen.